When I was uh, in my late teens, early 20s, there was a TV show that involved a group of guys just doing ridiculous stunts and pranks that usually involved somebody getting mildly to seriously hurt. Those of you that are my age, you probably know what show I'm talking about. I'm not going to repeat the name. But like most teenage, early 20s guys who saw this show, my friends and I thought, hey, we should do that too. They look like great role models. So let's, let's copy what they do. And so we decided we would find ways to do pranks and, and stunts that would borderline almost get us injured in the hospital, killed, you know, those kind of things that 18 to 22-year-old guys do. I'm not going to tell you all the things that we did because I want to keep some dignity, but I will tell you one time, we got this brilliant idea. Hey, let's put skateboard helmets on and butt heads with a billy goat. I mean, why not? That, that would be fun. And so my, my, at the time, we lived on an acreage, and we had a billy goat, and my friend had a skateboard helmet. And so we put skateboard helmets on, and we provoked this billy goat to start ramming us in the head, and we, we decided to put this on film. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a wonder none of us got a concussion or ended up in the hospital, because if you ever butted heads with the billy goats, they win every time. So... No one is going to say that that was the wisest decision. <laughs> You're all, if you were to see the video, if you were to be witnessing that, you'd probably go, hey, that was pretty foolish. And I would agree with you. Nothing wise about that decision. And this largely is how our culture defines foolishness. The idea that I am going to behave in some sort of risky, dumb behavior so something that could get myself hurt, something that, that isn't, I'm not thinking well, not thinking straight. This is how our culture can define foolishness. Fools are those who butt heads with billy goats or drive too fast on the road or maybe abuse alcohol and drugs or maybe they, the, the way that they engage relationships. The, the whole premise is that it is risky, it is dangerous, it is not thoughtful. Or, or maybe we can define foolish this way. You know, I'm, I'm naive. I lack knowledge. I'm the kind of person that could be given over to scams, or maybe I'm, I'm always looking for that sort of get-rich-quick scheme and it never pans out, or, or maybe I've fallen far too many times for that sweet-talking heartbreaker. This is how we define foolishness in our society. And to some degree, it's accurate. To some degree, yes, if we were to label out that behavior, it's foolish. But if that's how we limit the definition, we are playing it far too safe. We, we are creating a safe definition of fool and foolish that allows us to comfortably do this. Hey, the fools are those people over there that do that stuff. I'm not a fool. The, the, the fools are those that are engaging risky behavior or they're gullible. But I'm not a fool. Scripture, God's word, doesn't let us off the hook that easy. You see, Scripture defines fool in a deeper and more profound way that indicts us all, that, that, that looks out onto the entire landscape of humanity and says, you're all guilty. And, and what else? The foolishness that Scripture talks about is not just idiot boys butting heads with a billy goat or doing some sort of reckless behavior that could end them, get him in the hospital and that's basically it. No, the foolishness that scripture speaks of is far more dangerous and destructive. 
And so for us to take seriously this definition of fool, for us to listen carefully to what Scripture has to say about foolishness is important. And so Psalm 14, as we continue our, our summer series in the book of Psalms, Psalm 14 is a wisdom psalm. And it is a reflection on this category of foolishness. And here are sort of the three areas of foolishness that I want to look at and and reflect on from Psalm 14. It holds out for us the roots of foolishness, so its core cause, the radius of foolishness, so the scope, and the remedy for foolishness. So if you like your sermons with three points in alliteration, this is your day. The roots the radius, and the remedy of foolishness. This is what I want to look at from Psalm 14 this morning. So let's let's consider first what Psalm 14 says about the roots of foolishness. In verse 1, King David, who's the author of this psalm, gets right at the root of foolishness, goes right to the heart of the matter when he writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Like the fool is the one who lives from a heart posture of there is no God. So who is David talking about? Is David talking about ancient atheists, the ancient world version of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris? No. He's not being that small, that limited. So in using the language of foolishness, David is writing a psalm of wisdom. He's drawing from wisdom literature. And here's what wisdom literature tells us. So like the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and other parts of the book of Psalms. Here's what wisdom literature tells us about foolishness. It's defined by whether or not you fear the Lord. As the book of Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise knowledge and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the sort of the demarcation, the line by which we are either a fool or we're wise. And so for David to use this language of fool in relation to God, he's not just saying only atheists are fools. What he's saying is is that when we do not regard God, when we live our lives as if to say, hey God, you don't matter. God, you don't you don't have anything to say to my life. You don't have any, any, any bearing in the way that I live my life. When we disregard, when we have no fear of the Lord in our hearts, that is what makes us fools. That is what leads us into foolishness. So look, you don't have to be an atheist to live your life in such a way that says there is no God. If you in your life do not regard God's glory and his goodness and his truth, and his word, and, and the laws that he has laid down as far as what is good and holy and right and just, if the purpose of God and worship of God have no shaping factor in your heart, look, you are not walking in the fear of the Lord. You're disregarding God. And when this happens, the roots of foolishness sets up in our hearts. And so from the root, David then describes the fruits. This is also in verse one. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So look, foolishness is a destructive force. What happens when the root of foolishness takes hold? This, there is corruption. There is abominable deeds. That's a big word that just means these are bad, vile, gross deeds. And then there's no goodness. 
And so we should take foolishness seriously because of its destructive force. It's not harmless, as David points out here. The root of foolishness will always transform into a fruit of destruction. And if we consider just our culture, I mean, and just think about just our society and the ways that foolishness, the ways that when we have disregarded God and how that has impacted us, how that has affected our world. Think, we've disregarded God with our identity. And so now rather than living in relationship to God where we are secure in our identity, we're running around anxious wrecks trying to find identity for ourselves and it's never secure. And we're always moving for the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And in that pursuit, we wreck ourselves and we end up wrecking other people because we use them for our own identity. When we disregard God with our sexuality, what happens? We start using people for our own sexual gratification. And you see in our society, the preponderance of pornography and the addiction that just is a curse throughout our nation. When we disregard God for our purpose, for the purpose for our lives, what do we do? We run around trying to grab control of everything. We're trying to control our world and we're anxious wrecks. When we disregard God for our finances, what happens? Greed, corporate corruption, massive amounts of debt, buying things we can't afford to try to impress people, damage, destruction. When we disregard God in our laws and our nation, what happens? Injustice, oppression, corruption. The foolishness that is in our hearts has borne a destructive fruit in our society over and over and over again. When we disregard God, the effect is always, always damaging. David looks at the landscape, he surveys the situation, and he goes, we're fools. If you look at the way we live our lives, you look at the damage and the destruction, this is the only indictment. We're fools. Now look, that, that, the roots of foolishness is disregard for fear of the Lord. That the root of foolishness is our living as if there is no God shows that foolishness, being a fool, is less a matter of the head and more a matter of the heart. It's less about the, the amount of information and knowledge you have and about the condition of your heart. Look, you can be the smartest person in the room and the biggest fool in the room. Christians, you can have the most Bible knowledge in the room and be the biggest fool in the room. See, we need to recognize that being a fool is not about how much you know and how much information you have. Our society likes to sort of box this in and say, hey, the way out of foolishness is more knowledge and information. But if you can have the most knowledge in the room and be the biggest fool in the room, it's deeper than just knowledge. When I was in college, I had this professor who was incredibly brilliant. You just knew this guy had read a lot and he memorized it all. But he was also one of the most arrogant men I have ever seen. 
and he tried to tell you things that were, were that you didn't know or, or try to hit you with this information that like was supposed to surprise you. So I remember my, my first day of class and we were going around and introducing ourselves and just telling a little bit about ourselves. And he proceeded to tell me that my last name was Dutch. And, and I'm like, no, it's not, it's German. And he's like, no, it's Dutch because if it was German, it would be spelled this way, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I got in this argument with him back and forth, but he would not back down. And he started using all this linguistic and history and etymology. I mean, just all this knowledge to try to argue that my last name was Dutch. And I wanted to like call my mom and go, hey, can you get me like the family tree and, and show this guy that I'm from, like my family's from Germany, not Holland? My wife's maiden name is definitely Dutch. Mine not. But so, so this is how this guy was, tons of knowledge, but just the way he used it. And so one time in class, I, I, had a, I had a friend who just had enough of this guy's antics. And he goes, your knowledge supersedes, or how do you say it? Sorry, I, I completely just blanked on how he said this. Your arrogance supersedes your knowledge and makes you a fool. There it is. Your arrogance supersedes your knowledge and makes you a fool. And it was like one of those moments where you could just hear a pin drop. It was like, we were all like, whoa, did he just say that? But everybody was thinking it. Everybody was like, you are the smartest guy in the room, but you're also the biggest fool in the room. And so if we believe, if we believe that the issue is knowledge, we are never going to address our hard problem. Look, knowledge is important. Knowledge in a lot of ways does help us become less foolish. Knowledge of the Lord, knowledge of the world does help us. But if that's all it is, we will continue to be bigger and bigger and bigger fools. We may be smart fools, but we'll be fools nonetheless. So let me ask you, do you fear the Lord? Do you regard the Lord? And to the degree that you don't, to the degree that the Lord's glory and goodness and righteousness aren't shaping your heart, to that degree, you are a fool. To that degree, I'm a fool. The roots of foolishness is a lack of fear of the Lord. If that's the root, then what's the radius? In verses two and three, David gives us the radius. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So what is the radius of our fool problem? How, how far does this go? How much ground does it cover? Is it just a few fools walking around making life tough for the rest of us? Is it 50-50? Hey, is it 95-5? No. Everyone. The radius of foolishness stretches out across the entirety of the world. Its circumference covers everybody. We're all in, if, if there's a Venn diagram of foolishness, it's just one circle. We're all in the middle. Scripture tells us that none of us, in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we all are fools we all disregard the Lord. We all reject his goodness. And in that, none of us does any good. No, not one. It's, it's David says, there's none that does good, no, not one. It's like this double punch. It's like, no one. I meant it, no one. 
drives home the point. No, not one. We're all in this radius. And this is a sobering assessment. This should humble us to say, hey, we all have this root of foolishness in our heart. We should all recognize that we, before the Lord, are guilty of sin. We, before the Lord, we have rejected him. And we have chosen our own path. We have chosen to do things our way. And we have chosen that path to the detriment of ourselves and others. And here's why this is important. Because again, this forces us to not do this. It's them over there. It forces us to say, hey, I can't point the finger. I can't just go, hey, look, it's those who are just given over into sin. Just the sexually immoral, they're the fools. Just the drug abusers, they're the fools. Just the greedy people or the people who spend too much money or the corrupt or the abusers or those who, who try to take advantage of other people, they're the fools. I'm good, I'm religious, I'm moral. And we throw up that defense and think that Psalm 14 doesn't apply to us. But Psalm 14 lets no one off the hook. Even if you are moral and religious, even if you would say, hey, I try to be an honest person. I don't rip anybody off. I treat people with respect. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat at work. If you want to bolster your morality, or if you want to say, hey, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I give. I go to my small group. I pray. I do all the Christian things. If you want to hold those two things up and say, this makes me not a fool, Psalm 14 indicts you. And in fact, this is what the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 3. When he makes this very point, he draws on Psalm 14 to make the very point that everybody is under sin. This is what he writes in, in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul is making the case. Hey, look, Scripture says everyone is guilty. No one does good. But then from that point, he presses something more specific. He presses on the specifically religious types that this is the problem. For those who want to throw up the religious defense or the moral defense, Paul presses past that and says, no, even you are indicted by Psalm 14. Here's what he goes on to say in Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, meaning for, through your religious and moral actions, no human being will be justified in his sight. Look, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves if we think our moral and religious action let us off the hook. We deceive ourselves if we think our moral and religious action exclude us from being in the radius of foolishness. We, ex we, we deceive ourselves when we think that our moral and religious action offsets our foolishness. Man, if I'm more moral and more religious than I am foolish, then I'm okay. No. Here's the scary part. Because 
we are in sin. Because if you are enslaved to sin, if you've never been set free from the power of sin, your religion and your moral effort doesn't help you become less foolish. It only makes the problem worse because it becomes a cover for your foolishness. It becomes an outlet for your foolishness. How many of us have used religion and religious practice to damage others? How often has our foolishness come out in religious ways? How often has our moral posturing done damage to others? How often have we tried to cover the rot in our hearts with good actions because we don't want people to know just how broken we are? Friends, this should sober us. It is absolutely possible for you to be moral and religious and still live your life as to say there is no God. This is the indictment of Psalm 14. This is the radius of the foolishness that we're caught in because we're all caught in sin. So let me ask again. Are you honest and humble about your foolishness? Maybe some of you in this morning, this, you're here this morning or you're on live stream and you're ready to admit, look, I'm a fool. I have given myself over to immorality. I have my, my finances. The way I've just lived my life has been reckless and there is a trail of damage in myself and other people. And so for me to say I'm a fool, I have no problem admitting that. But what about others of you in here that throw up the religious and moral defense and you're hiding behind it. And what you need to do is you need to be honest that you're a fool and you've been living in foolishness and that has just been a cover. Your heart really doesn't belong to the Lord. There's no love of him and his goodness and his glory. You're not giving your life to glorify him and be on mission with him. How many of you need to own that and be honest about that this morning? The root of foolishness runs deep. The radius of foolishness covers us all. But there is hope. The good news of the gospel is there is a remedy, and even David knows it. Even David gets there here in Psalm 14. Here's what he writes in verses 5 and 6 about the remedy for this world of foolishness and sin. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the word there in the Hebrew can also be translated behold, look. David is saying there. I want you to see something. I want you to see an event, a time, something happening. There they are in terror. He's talking about the fools. They're in terror. Why? For the Lord is with the righteous. This is a statement, a poetic statement of the judgment God brings that God is going to judge foolishness. God is going to judge foolishness, but he's also going to bring salvation for the righteous. Now look, the judgment side of this can be a problem for many. Like we don't like the idea of God judging. Well, we don't like the idea of God stepping into the world and judging sin and sinners for, for what they did. We don't, we don't like the idea of being guilty before God. But here's what we need to recognize we intuitively want judgment. Uh, look, we may not say that we want judgment from God, but we certainly want judgment in this world. I mean, just look at what's going on in our society right now. The outcry for justice is a cry for judgment. 
It's a cry for someone to step in and hold those who, are, who have done evil and wicked things and have done damage in our world, hold them accountable. Put them in jail, lock them up, do something to stop the wickedness. We want judgments because we recognize that with judgments comes an end to wickedness and evil. Hey, look, even in the broken dynamic of cancel culture, that's a cry for judgment. That, that's people saying, hey, I don't like what you've done. That needs to stop, so I'm going to cancel you. Hey, that's a, that's a hot mess in our society. But underneath that is a call for judgment because we intuitively recognize that when judgment comes, there is an end to evil and wickedness and destruction and damage. And so God's judgment is good news for us. God is going to put an end to the wickedness in our world. God is going to end the suffering and the damage that fools perpetuate. God is good and he loves his creation. And because he is good, because he is righteous, he will not let evil destroy what he has made. And so he's going to judge it. But there's also the other side. He's going to dwell with the righteous. He's going to save the righteous. There is salvation here in his judgment. But... There should be some tension here for us. We should be asking the question, who's righteous? I, I mean, didn't, didn't David just say, hey, no one does good. No one's righteous. So, so how can David talk about the righteous? And then how can David in verse 7 even long for this salvation? He writes, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David is contemplating this day of judgment and salvation and he's saying this is gonna be a day of rejoicing because God is going to save. But then there's this tension. How do we go from verse three, no one is good, to verse five, when they're righteous? How do we close that gap? David doesn't really close that gap for us. He just declares this is going to happen so who's the righteous? Well, this is the good news of the gospel, and this is the gap that the Apostle Paul closes for us in Romans 3. This is the gap that the gospel closes. The gospel fulfills this jump from verse 3 to verse 5. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes at the end of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe... For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Who are the righteous? Is it the moral and the religious? No. Who are the righteous? Who are the ones God rescues and who are the ones God is going to dwell with? Those who put their faith in Jesus. Those who have turned from their sin those that have turned from their religious posturing, those that have turned from their moral posturing and put their faith in Jesus, those are the ones that God redeems. Those are the ones that God saves. Those are the ones who are righteous, not through their own works, but through faith in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that God the Father in love sends Jesus into this world of fools and Jesus walks righteously. He walks perfectly, not as a fool, but as a wise, perfect, loving, obedient son. 
And then Jesus points us to the way of wisdom and righteousness. And then Jesus lays down his life for fools like you and me. He lays down his life and he takes the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God on himself so that you and I can be forgiven. And then he is resurrected in power. And here is the good news for you, fool. If you put your faith in Jesus, here's what he does. He forgives you. He not only forgives you, he sets you free from your sin, sets you free from your foolishness. He pours out his spirit on you and empowers you to walk in righteousness. The good news of the gospel is you can be set free from your foolishness by the power of God, by the power of Christ, by the power of the spirits. Here here is what we need to recognize. Here is what we hold on to. Look, the root of sin goes deep. The radius of sin is great, but the salvation in Jesus is greater. The power of God is greater than the root of foolishness in our heart. The salvation of Jesus is greater than the radius of sin and foolishness in our world. We have hope. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to end the wickedness and the evil and the destruction that is running rampant in our world and he's going to rescue us. He's going to restore this creation to its good and beautiful state and he's going to dwell with us. God is going to dwell with us, those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ. This is our hope, church. This is our hope in the midst of our foolishness. And so, in conclusion, let me call you to this. If you, if you, have never put your faith in Christ. If you are walking in your foolishness, whether it's in rampant sin or covering it with moral and religious action, but you have never put your faith in Jesus, look, he calls to you today. He he holds out salvation to you today. Come and put your hope in Christ and be renewed in Christ. But for those who have put your faith in Jesus, those of you that do have the righteousness of Christ through faith, Here's the call for us. Let's keep repenting. Keep turning from our sin. Keep being renewed in the righteousness that is yours in Jesus. Keep walking by faith. Keep walking in obedience. Keep turning to Christ day and day and watch him transform your heart so you more and more love and worship and are conformed to his image. Church, let's not be people They're full of head knowledge about the Bible, but foolish in our hearts. Let the knowledge of God in Scripture, let our our studying Scripture and praying Scripture and singing Scripture and worshiping God, let, let all of that translate into hearts that more and more fear the Lord, more and more love Him and worship Him and follow Him. Let's be full of knowledge and that knowledge transform our hearts. This is what God calls us to. This is the hope that we have. Church, as we see foolishness destroying our world, let us be a community. Let us be a community of righteousness. Let us be a community that is renewed in the fear of the Lord and let us carry this gospel to the world that they may experience the salvation and the renewal that is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray.